It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. I'm so glad that you made it to class this morning. Weather is breaking, at least here up on the East Coast. And this morning's show is a full circle moment for me. When I started Sunday Civics, I began the show talking about public education because we all know the importance of public education for our community, for our children. And this morning, we're going to return to this very important issue, partly because I've began the process of following the money, particularly the billions of dollars, and yes, I said billions with a B, that have been sent to states and local school districts for education. Now, remember the CARES Act that was signed into law back in 2020? That act, signed by Congress, put in put into law $30.7 billion earmarked for public education or for education in general. The COVID relief package that followed that in 2020, December 2020, sent $82 billion in education. And the American Rescue Plan that was just signed into law at the beginning of this year, I think back in March, sent the largest share with $168 billion, still with a B, dollars to states for education. The money was specifically dedicated to stabilize state education budgets, because if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know we've talked about where education come, dollars come from, and you know that majority of a, a large share of state budgets uh, a large share of it is for education. It's education and healthcare are the two largest items that states spend money on. And because there was this loss of revenue that states were facing, partly because of well, largely due to COVID and everything shutting down, Congress put a lot of education funding in those relief packages. And it's important to read the bills and learn what some of the funding is actually earmarked for. For instance, in the America Rescue Plan, that's the last one, $800 million was earmarked to support students experiencing homelessness. And so each state and territory received money back in April based upon their share, their population, estimated population of families experiencing homelessness with children who were in the public education system. So I'm going to like hashtag census, hashtag numbers, in terms of where all of that comes from. So if you are in a city or a community that has been experiencing increased homelessness, uh, particularly homeless families, you should follow the money and see how your state and local school district has used that money that was specifically earmarked for families in need, for students who are homeless, and ensure that that money was actually going to support those students. Now, here in New York State, parents and children have also won a nearly 30-year campaign for equitable funding for New York public school children. And after the break, where we'll take our first break, I'm going to bring Zakia Ansari. She's the advocacy director and New York City director for the Alliance for Quality Education. She actually joined the show back, I think, think my second episode because my first and second episode was primarily focused on public education and she was on the show the second show and she talked about this advocacy pan campaign. It was called the Campaign for Fiscal Equity, which actually began as a lawsuit in which parents had gathered together to argue that the state of New York was not providing adequate education for public school students. And the state, you know, go back and forth, and we'll talk about the history of that. But there is a victory to celebrate, and it's nearly 30 years in the making. And so Zakia will come back on the show, talk to us about that, and then later we'll have my absolute favorite person, my favorite guest, New York's first black chancellor, Dr. Lester Young Jr. We'll talk about the origins of public education and why it's so important. We'll be right back. Boy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you 
Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, L. Joy Williams. And as I said at the top of the hour, this is a full circle moment for me and Sunday Civics. When I began the show, the very first topic, the very first conversation we had was about public education. And I am bringing a guest to the front of the class, actually back to the front of the class, who was with me in the beginning you know, was in was was in the gym shooting with me, <laughs> as they say. My girl, Zakia Anzari from the Alliance for Quality Education. She's the advocacy director and New York City director. Said yes to my request uh, to come on and talk about public education at the time, and she is back on Sunday Civics to continue that conversation. Hey, Zakia, how are you? Hey, Joy. Congratulations! I can't believe four years. <laughs> It has been uh, a long road and we've been in a couple of battles together in that five, in that four year time. But the reason why I wanted to have you back on the show is to talk about one aspect of a fight because, you know, we're all in multiple fights going on at the same time. Um, but those of you who may remember from the beginning, or even if you happen to Um, have worked in education, public education in New York for some time, know that there has been a fight for what, 20, 30 years? um, Mm, Almost 30 years. Almost Almost 30 30 years for what is called foundation aid funding for public schools here in New York State. And recently in the state budget in New York, the fight for equitable funding was addressed. That funding um, will now become permanent with a three-year phase in. But Zakia, I want you to start off by putting into context this fight, like you said, that began with a lawsuit, and we'll go over a brief history of it shortly. But let's talk about the win right now. Yeah, sure. I think when I was on your show last time, we had just finished the year before 150 mile walk to Albany to fight for these actual dollars. Right. And so, yes. Can you imagine, you know, how many people told us to give up at the Alliance for Quality Education? You're not going to ever get these dollars. Just just let it go and find something else to work on. Like so many folks. And it was a reminder for us that this is a marathon. The fight for justice is a marathon. It is not a sprint. But imagine if we had given up. Um, because of the parents and community members across New York State, educators and others who stood by us, who, who fought with us, people like El Joy, who helped us elevate our story and constantly keep it in the press and the media. You know how hard it is to keep something called the Campaign for Fiscal Equity sexy and in the forefront of people's minds, um, especially the, the uh, reporters. Um, but parents and community members understood that these dollars could be transformational and change in our schools if we were to get them. And there was an agitation around where are our dollars at? Where's our funding and how do we get it? And so we were able to collectively organize with them. Um, And because of that organizing, as well as a progressive legislator, more progressive legislature, uh, and that doesn't mean the governor, uh, we were able to bring these dollars home. A three-year phase-in of almost $4 billion, which was owed to Black, Brown, and poor children across New York City, across New York public schools, not just New York City, across New York State, almost $4 billion. So this year, we get 50% of those dollars. So New York City specifically um, got $530 million from that. Um, And then next year, we'll receive uh, about some more. And then the following year, 50%, the full phase-in will be there. Um, So this is a a momentous occasion. Uh, I have to shout out and make sure I acknowledge Senator Robert Jackson, who actually was the parent that started the, he was a lead plaintiff in 1993, who is now the senator who actually brought it home. Can you imagine talking about full circle moment? You started this, you were the lead plaintiff in this lawsuit, and then you bring home the billions of dollars for the children after your kids are grown and now you got grandkids. Um, So it's a really powerful moment for all of us. And so we're really excited about that. But as you said, Eljoy, the work has not stopped and it should not. In the next phase that we're in right now is around accountability on how these dollars should be spent. And once again, it's engaging those same parents, young people, educators and community members and how these dollars should be spent. I think that's an, you know, again, talking about the full circle moment and, you know, we're actually going to play a bit later Senator Robert Jackson's comments when they voted on the budget, right? And sort of that full circle moment. 
And I want to go back and just give a little a little bit of a history lesson, because as you mentioned, it is a long timeline going back to 1993 when a lawsuit was filed against the state of New York saying that the state was not providing adequate funding for children to receive their constitutional right to, I think the phrase was like a sound basic education. That was the original lawsuit and it was upheld by the court of appeals. And then it goes to trial and back and forth. And the moment I I think this was 99, 2000, when the court found that Supported supported the states because the state was challenging the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And I think Pataki was the governor at the time. And I was coming into like adulthood, political like agitation in state politics at the time. I was still like in college focused on like, you know, smaller, like little local things. But I remember the very like going to like a protest or a rally or something because Pataki at the time and the state was arguing that the state was only responsible for up to an eighth grade education. That's right. <laughs> and I remember, like, I remember being like eighth grade, like I remember, and I think there was some rally or something and like folks were organizing like college students and high school students to participate. And that's how I kind of got involved. And I wasn't even in New York city at the time. I was still in Long Island because I was in college at Hostra at the time. And I just remember it being so ridiculous that the state would argue that it's only responsible for an eighth grade education. Like, I, I was like, wait, did they actually put that in writing? Like, right. on, like, right. like they didn't have Twitter anymore. and social media back then. That would have been a viral moment for sure. Uh, you, you know, j- just as you said that, I was like, can you imagine like social, like Twitter, Black Twitter, Black like Twitter. <laughs> at that moment to say that the state was only responsible for an eighth grade education the That's memes right. the the clapbacks the, right. the the, the right. root stories like it would have been a whole <laughs> like a whole for thing. sure for sure and so to have, um, you know, and not even not even that, like, you know, the the young people who are activated, like on TikTok, sometimes I see them do the videos and I'm like, OK, what's your political education on TikTok? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I, so I re- that is the entry point that I had to the fight. Right. So was that the state was arguing this and, you know, it was eventually overturned is eventually won. And but then there was a court order. That said, after, you know, the uh, parents won, you know, the case was upheld. And since I think 2004 or 2006, the state was just like, that's nice that there's a court case that's, you know, there's a ruling that says we have to provide this money, but we not. (laughs) And so between that point and today, you know, up until the you know budget was voted on earlier this year, the state just simply has not lived up to or complied with that order. Yeah, well, just for clarity, so in 2006, when the highest court, the Court of Appeals upheld the decision, the first two years, and that was because of our organizing at AQE, we organized parents and others to go up to Albany and push then Governor Spitzer to put to get him to commit. And we were shocked ourselves to almost putting six, almost $6 billion into funding education. And so for the first two years, we received a billion plus dollars. It was only supposed to be a four-year commitment of this. Um, and then the market crashed. And so it's been from like 2008, 2009 that we've been, to your point, they have not funded it and they have not actually used the formula since 2008. So here we are uh, with a victory at the end of the day is really some story it is. The more I talk about, you know, when you're in it, it you, you don't see all the nuances, but when you talk to other folks and they're like, yeah, and it's not like, hmm, it really is kind of profound. Well, let me talk about that for, for a bit, because, you know, as you mentioned, the senator was a plaintiff, right? So his kids were in public school at the time, and now he got grandkids. I see the picture sometimes, and I'm like, just, you know, that, that, that time frame. And you yourself, you know, had having had children, in, you know, in the school system, and now you know they're old, you know, older and sort of peace. I got grandkids in the school now too, <laughs> right? And now you got grandkids, uh, grandkids as well. And you know, we talk about esoterically about being in a fight in an ongoing battle, but 
have you had time to separate yourself and sort of think about this battle for public education? I know, as you mentioned up front, it has been, you know, people telling you, okay, like shift, shift to something else, you know, this is not going to happen, things. But have you had time to really think about sort of the longevity of a campaign like this and the win? I have not. I can honestly say I have not. Like we've had, as staff, we have actually, when how I found out was I was at the gym and it was a few minutes before our staff call that we usually have. And I looked at my phone and they were like, can you get on the call? And I was like, what's going on? Like, why do they need me on early? So I call and everybody's like gig, like smiling and I'm like, what's happening? It, and it never dawned. I don't know why it didn't dawn on me that that was the thing. And they were like, we did. And I'm like, what did we do? Like, it really was like, <laughs> you got to say this to me. Like, I need to hear the words, you know? Yeah. Like, and so it was just really profound. And there was like lots of tears. And I could, I've yet to like shed a tear around this. And I'm a, I'm a cry. I cry at commercials. Like, if you give me a good commercial, I'm done. So, <laughs> and I, I think because my brain is always in next mode phase. So for me, next mode was like the accountability on how these, how these dollars would be spent. And I know we're going to talk about the federal dollars. It's the foundation aid and the billions of dollars right after coming off of a pandemic, like that we're kind of still in, but on the tail end of it. Right. And so I have my brain go straight to what's the next thing. And I, I don't think I'm uh, I think that's normal in the work and movement work that we do. Right. It's like, OK, cool, let's move on. Um, but we really took time to celebrate the victory multiple times, mostly virtually, and we're going to do one in person too, right? Because it is something that we don't do well. As folks who do movement work, we don't celebrate our wins well at all. And so we want to make sure that um, parents and others who put their work in and sent emails and all that other stuff are able to participate and understand that it's so important across the board to celebrate the victories, no matter how big, whether it's almost 30 year victory, or how small, which is like you organized the meeting and parents came out to listen to what you had to say, right? They all matter and play a major role in all the victories and all the movement work that we do. And so how do we, we have to make that a normal thing, right? Um, so to your point, I have not really sat back. I think there's moments like this when I'm talking to you or my kids understood, they were like, wow, Ma, thank, congratulations. We know you fought so hard for it. You know, they were texting me that day. It's those moments like that, that I remember but they don't stay there. Mm. So much more work to do. Before we get to the more work to do, I want to stay there really quickly about organizing parents because you yourself being a parent and, you know, me being a parent and a foster parent, you know, we, you know, there's nuances and differences to organizing people with small children, multiple children and getting them engaged in a way that, they feel some value given the time that the time commitment, you know, that's involved. Can you talk a bit about what it's like organizing parents, even being a parent yourself and just, yeah. just reflecting on that in general? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, um, yeah, it's, it's tough. It really is. I was fortunate that, um, when my kids were younger, um, you know, I, there was somebody at home many times. They were not always like it was sometimes where they were at a babysitter or whatever. But when I first started getting involved in this, I had uh, my 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 last daughter, which is daughter number seven, was born. I hadn't had my son yet, and I started to get involved and learn all this stuff. So I had no idea what any of this organizing thing was. I didn't know what that was, right? So it was a learning curve on that front. Um, but I also knew that I didn't want to, I, I could tell this story because I think it's funny. You know, I was in my Oprah days where I was watching Oprah just like everybody else. And Oprah had a show where it was a parent and she was just so devastated because her kids were going off to college. They were getting married. They were moving out. They would like had their own lives. And she was like, I pulled my life into all of them and they have left me. And I was like, I do not want to be that parent. <laughs> I got to find something for me to do. And I had no idea what that would be. Right. And so getting involved in, in schools wound up being the thing. Um, that I didn't necessarily plan for, but happened. And so once I started to get involved and do that work, right, um, it was something I was really passionate about, but it was a lot of sacrifices I made over the years. Like there was things I couldn't be at when my kids had uh, events or performances or all those things, right? And so I had to ask my mother, I would ask my mother to substitute. Again, I was fortunate I had somebody else I could ask, or I would ask one of the older kids to go to one of the younger kids' events, like take pictures, take videos, right? 
to capture those moments. Like my son did ballroom dancing and I missed the whole thing. <laughs> you know, I was like, that's the only time I, he ever did it in school. But I missed that. I never forget that moment. I don't know where I was, but I'll never forget those moments. And it's a level of guilt. And I think whether you're in movement work or you're working two jobs, like the level of guilt of not being able to be with your kids is real. But also what I realized as they're older, I have this reflection piece is that they understood the importance of the work. Um, and how powerful that was in molding them themselves of being advocates for themselves, advocates for now, now that they have children, advocates for that, but also a resource, right? It's not just mommy, you know, how do I cook this? It's mommy, you know, I'm trying to get my daughter into this school. You have any ideas of how I can do that, right? And so you don't see that in the moments of feeling guilt and being upset and sad that you can't be at places. Um, but post, trust me, you know, your children appreciate it. Um, and the work that you're doing is so important. Um, but also I say like, if it's too much, it's okay to pause. Like movement work is supposed to happen even when someone needs to take a break. And if it's not, then we're not doing the work well. You know, you just preached a whole word to me <laughs> because like, to, like tomorrow I have to be like out in the street and it's also, you know, my goddaughter like decide, took up Taekwondo and she's like getting her next belt. And I was like, but I have to be out here because the people, the, you know, the whatever. So the entire Taekwondo experience has been just me experiencing it via text of my husband texting me pictures. Like I haven't been able to like go or like do anything and I'm going to miss the belt thing. And like literally for the last two days, I've been feeling guilty about it. But to your point, when she was here in my office yesterday and I'm having, you know, training people on something, she happened to be in my office at the same time. And she, you know, decides to come to the mic and she was like, I'm going to help people just like God, mommy. And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. like, and now yes. I want to cry. And I'm just like, I'm going to miss her Taekwondo belt. But, you know, she sees, right? right? Like that, you know, this piece or whatever. So that's definitely. In a world that keeps us as Black women down and says all the things that it did. We are, we are, we are showing, you know, young people, our young people, other young people, right? That the power of Black women, what we already know is real, but we're using the tangible examples, like the names that you can call, like my godmother, you know, like my yeah. mother, like, you know, all these things. You can't underestimate that. And I don't think it's hard. When you're in a moment of feeling the way you feel guilt, it's hard to see that. So yeah. it's, it's yeah. wonderful to have those moments. It, it kind of centers you. Yeah. Remember them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you remember five. You've had multiple <laughs> five-year-olds. So <laughs> this is true. <laughs> you remember that. And grandkids are now like five, seven, eight, nine. Like this. <laughs> the next generation has begun in my household. Yeah. So let's get to this federal funding because I'm I'm really hyper-focused on budget justice in general, right? And that when we're talking about civic engagement, we spend a lot of time talking about, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, electing people. We spend a lot of time about holding individual elected officials accountable when it comes to legislation, whether it's in Congress, you know, the governor, the state house decisions and that things, I, you know, I'm of the mindset that it's, it, it's, it's ongoing right now and it's, it's bubbling up right now, but getting people organized around budget justice in general, whether that's funding for education, the funding for reducing funding on law enforcement, on military, you know, on th those kinds of things. It, it's a hard thing to organize around, particularly because, you know, people want a dollar amount attached to something and they want to they want to sort of boil it down to something easy you can fight for reduce by 1 million or 1 billion increase by 30 billion 20 billion right cuz it's easier to do a campaign rally you know around a specific amount but then the overall which you know you and I know that we talk about budgets are moral documents as well and how much how money is being funneled and used. And the federal government, not only in these COVID relief bills, have they given money into individual people's pockets and into businesses, but also into education. The CARES Act that was signed into law, $30 billion in education. 
the COVID relief package that was in the end of last year, $82 billion. And then the American Rescue Plan, $168 billion, right? So that's a lot of money that is coming from the federal government. And when you're talking about budgets, particularly from the feds, all the way, you got to follow that trail, honey. You got to go, it goes from the federal government to state governments, then to local communities or local districts, you know, you got to be able to connect those dots. And that's the accountability you're talking about. Yeah. Let me tell you something. I've, I think, you know, for all the things that you, I don't know if you think, but Trump has made us so aware of how government works, right? Over the last four years, if, with all the bad stuff, like people across the board on all levels of income are so attached to not only federal government, but how local governments are working, right? Which I think is really powerful and it was hard to get people to do that. At the same time, one of the things around the accountability piece that we as AQE have been doing from the very beginning since we shut down in like March 16th or whatever it was of last year, I think it was my birthday last year we shut down, is right away be able to make the connections for parents and community members in very simple forms and very simple materials about the connections to local, state, and federal, not just the money because we didn't have the federal money at the time, but their connection to how they stack on top of each other and what they support and what we get from those particular areas, right? So we had town halls with Congresswoman Yvette Clark, with uh, Senator Myrie, um, and we've had Jamal Bowman at some, uh, we had a town hall with Jamal Bowman. Then we have town halls with state elected officials. Like over the year, we've been doing a lot of that work. Why? Because it's important for people to understand it. The average parent community member needs to understand it. And it's hard for people to go out and learn it. So we had to bring it to our folks, right? So that was one. On top of that now, it was to be able to connect the state funding, the federal money, and all those other things and how they connect together and often give people ways to take action. Right. So it's not enough to just tell somebody, like, how do we move people to do something? So it was emails, obviously, because we weren't going anywhere. It was send an email, it was social media, it was Facebook posts, call your elected official. Right. It was like all those things we could do to give them actions to actually take steps to move forward. And then we got the money. So it was important. And we, if you go to our AQE website, we have breakdowns of all the things. One is where your district, if you're in New York State, how much of the December money we got, how much of the CARES Act dollars we got, how much of the foundation aid dollars you will be receiving in your school district, and how much of the rescue American Rescue Plan dollars, right, you will receive. Important. Why? Because people need to be able to see it when we're not around. We want to offer documents and materials that are easily to understand so that they can do, go and do their own advocacy. We also created an advocacy toolkit. School budgets are happening right now across New York State. So one, we wanted to create documents that people could print, um, with a side-by-side -side of what we got from the state and what we got from the federal government, of which New York City alone is getting 12, I'm sorry, New York State is getting $12 billion from the, from those, from the federal government. That's a lot of money, right? On top of what I said, the $1.3 billion we're getting from the foundation aid. That's $13 billion come from, to, from, coming from the state and the federal government to our localities. We've always had, I think you mentioned this before, we've always had the things that we wanted to fund. So now it's time, the, the, and the argument has always been, well, we don't have the funding. It's just not time. Even when that wasn't true, that was always a thing. Well, guess what? The states across across the country cannot hide behind that narrative if we don't have money. We got plenty of money, man. We got lots of money. And it's not too much money. That's the other narrative. It is not too much. These are communities that have been underfunded for decades, for decades. So it's not too much money. But we do know on accountability, because history tells us if parents and community members and those most impacted by the change that they need to see are not at the table, the system will do what it deems necessary and thinks is what the community needs. And many times over the decades, it has not been what we needed, right? So what do we do? We want to make sure that parents and others are part of these conversations, school board meetings, local, uh, you know, community education council meetings here in New York City, which are local DOE, state education department. We need to know. They need to know how we want these dollars to be spent. Um, and we have to make sure we do that because if we don't, five years down the line, they will be saying, look at those black and brown kids. Look at all the money we threw at them and they just did not, they couldn't do it. It's them, it's them. And we don't want that to be the narrative. Whether they try it or not, more importantly, it's impossible 
we cannot allow that to be that we cannot allow billions of dollars to go down the drain our children are starving for these dollars they needed them way before this pandemic um and so how do we make sure that the voices that need to be there are at the table lots of money but it's not too much and we're hearing that there's another 4.2 billion dollars that new york city is is receiving um which is part of a 45 billion dollar national piece that's part of the American Rescue Plan for localities and municipalities. So there's more money here. Um, and it's about do we sp making sure we spend it correctly, right, in a racial justice lens, um, and and spend it transform transformatively, right? Not the same old things that we want to do. How are we making sure that children have what they need and not giving them what we want to give them? Well, I think that's a really important piece of following the money. Right. And, you know, what Zakia gave is an example of how AQE and other organizations are following the money, NAACP, the, you know, like everybody's following the money to make sure it gets to our communities. And like you mentioned, that it's not just the same things over and over again. But with that money, look, every school, every K through 12 school should have option for extended day and after school programs and working with groups to see what programs can be in the building. Every, like there should be no excuse. Right. And, you know, at our kids school, you know, there's the application and they're always like, we don't have enough staff to cover so many people. So there's like this competition and parents, like there shouldn't be competition for after school programs and enrichment programs come September. Just absolutely should have not. nurses. There's no reason that school There's no reason. doesn't have a nurse. There's no reason that schools shouldn't have multiple social workers if they need them and school counselors if they need them. There is no excuse other than the, the will to do it. And yeah. that's, that's the thing that we have to combat as well as the biases and the racism that exists too. Like we can't think that all these dollars are going to flow in and that racism and biases are just going to I don't know what that is. I'm just going to not look at that. No, it's <laughs> trust me. If anything, it's going to wreak its ugly head even louder and stronger. And and Eljo, if you just give me one second, there's one thing sure. I want to bring up, which happened on a national level. There is this concerted attack around critical race theory, right? Um, that's happening across this nation, not just here. They're here in New York, too. Um, and they have different organizations. Some are funded by the Koch brothers. And if you know the Koch brothers, that's all I got to say. Because you know it's bad news when you hear them. So they are attacking um, anything, any kind of conversations around implicit bias trainings, around cultural responsive and sustaining education, around transgender justice for students or adults, right? It is veiled in this really language that says, you know, we don't teach our children to be racist or we are colorblind and we don't see color. And so therefore we don't need this law. We don't need to be teaching people. We have GOP legislatures across this country who are passing or trying to pass laws that would prohibit, prohibit teachers from teaching about racism and using words like that. The 1619 Project to like that is forbidden. Like they are actually trying to and passing laws that prohibit us from learning the true history of what's happened in this country. How can history is history? Like, how do you get to rewrite it? So I'm asking and begging people to please pay attention. Those narratives are harmful, they're traumatic, um, and they and they are they are not centered in in justice. And, and if you're an American and not centered in an American way, like the whole history is the history. You cannot pick and choose what you want to talk about. Um, so please don't just don't um invisibilize our communities, whether they're indigenous, black or brown or immigrant. We must face it all um, and please push back against it because there's superintendents and school districts that are now afraid to have these conversations when they were all in on having them. They are canceling uh, workshops around implicit bias training for educators, et cetera, because they're afraid. We cannot be afraid. This is the moment to step up and stand up and stand up for what's right. Um, so remember, if you hear anybody attacking critical race theory, know it's also attack on Black Lives Matter, transgender rights, and a whole host of other justices that we're trying to fight for. I think that's really important in talking about, you know, this, that it's an attack, right? Recognizing it for what it is, that an increased conversation about making yourself aware of bias that you have as a teacher, as a school system, as systems in general, and how you can speak to and engage and educate communities, you know, educate children in communities, how you can, you know, get 
get that bias out of the way to really get to what you're supposed to be doing and getting to, to that heart of it, right? Nobody's asking you, like, this training is not for you to become a social justice warrior if, you know, right. if you're afraid of that. Like, that's not what it is. What it is is about, okay, how do I recognize these things? How do I check these biases within myself and treat these human beings that I have a responsibility to educate? How do I meet their needs? How do I meet them where they are? you know, to give them the education they need to go to the next step. And so if you are that educator, if you are that education system, if you are that city, you should be like, it is your mission, right? To think about ways of where, how can I do my job most effectively, right? And so this is the training. This is part of it, right? Like, and, and to think about that and rather not being afraid of that. And so we, as parents, we, as the public, have to make the space comfortable and say that, yes, you need this. Yes, these are my children that are in your care. And therefore, I need to know that you have the proper training, which is not just how do you teach math, the training is also how do you manage your classroom effectively? How do you manage the children that are in your care during this time in order to give them the education that you're supposed to give them? So I think that's really important. Well, Zakia, thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. And, you know, we'll be in more battles together <laughs> and more celebrations together too to, cel <laughs> to celebrate what we are doing in the community. And so thank you so very much for continuing the fight. Thank you so very much for making yourself available. And I'm sure you'll be back with more soon. Thank you. Have a good one. We'll be right back with more of Sunday Civics. How can it be? back to Sunday Civics. Now, as you know, I do love giving historical context for things. And instead of me giving historical context on public education, I thought to go back to my conversation with Dr. Lester Young, who recently made history by being elected the first black chancellor of the State Board of Regents, basically the head of education in the state of New York. And he gave a great, succinct <laughs> history and context of public education that I, I just thought it was a, a great idea for us to revisit Take a listen. Some historians say that public education began with the statement that a nation that expects to be free and ignorant expects the impossible. The challenge is that the statement was made by Thomas Jefferson. And at the time that he made that statement, more than 60% of the children in Virginia were enslaved Africans. So he really wasn't talking about that. And so while we can attribute the notion of public education to the early um, founders of America, what we know is that that system of public education was never really designed for us. And so on, on the flip side of that, um, <clears throat> People of African descent have always understood the connection between learning, education, and freedom. I mean, that was a hallmark of our existence. And, and to the development of, of what was called church schools, people would gather around under the guise of worshiping, but they were really learning to read. Uh, and so that's always been part of our who we are as a people. The other the other point, the role of public education, uh, it is really the equalizer. Uh, the, the challenge for us has been that under the idea of public education, there's never been the kind of one system that has worked for all of us. And so, for example, today people are saying 
that the way to do public education is to have choice, as if choice is something new. And so the, the distinction was that choice was about enrichment. In other words, parents selected these alternatives because the alternatives had something that they wanted. So choice was an enrichment, and it was a part of our, our education process. The difference today is that choice is no longer an enrichment process. Choice has become a replacement process. And so if you talk to parents now, when they exercise choice, they will tell you that they don't really know very much about the new school. They just want to get away from what they have. And, and the problem with that is that for those parents that try to exercise their choice and don't get it, it tears the community apart. So what we've now done is move from communities where people exercise choice based on enrichment. Now we are in a situation which some people get their choice and some people don't. And when you don't get your choice, what, what, what does that do to you? Right? What does that do to you as an adult? What's the message that that sends to your child? So while public education is the equalizer, public education is moved from serving everyone to, to only serving segments of our population. And so the kind of isolation that you're having now, it's not, it's not a racial isolation. It is, it's really a socioeconomic isolation. And so here's what you have. You have, you've got entire schools where kids don't see anyone that looks like themselves who are doing well. Right. And so we play this game of trying to have a system. And that's what I, when I want to go back to historic piece. When we had the choice for enrichment, we had a system of good schools. Now what we have is everybody's just trying to get their child into one good school. Mm. And see, and we all know that that's not going to happen. And so the vision of public education is that it's a public, it's an education for all young people, right? You, you, you know, it shouldn't matter what school you go to. And in fact, if you live in, a, in an affluent community, in this city and other cities, what you will find is parents are not worried about what school their child will end up in. This only happens in poor communities. And so if you go, for example, um, if you go to Queens, right, if you go to the community of Bayside, no parent is worrying about what elementary school their child, because they know whatever school they get in is going to be fine. And you know what? They can just go to the neighborhood middle school. And if they don't get into a specialized high school, it doesn't matter because they can go to Cardoza High School or Bayside High School. Those are great schools. And those schools have over 3,000 students in them. And so that's the other challenge. See, they, they, they've also tried to tell us that the only way we can educate our kids is if they're in a small school. Why does that only work in our community? And so, again, the issue, uh, this idea of public education, I think, it is still the great equalizer, um, but I think we've lost our way. And, and I think it's become us uh, an education enterprise that's really not designed for everyone. And, and the thing that really hurts is when I hear people talking about, well, if we could only have a gifted class, if we could only have a gifted school, and what does that mean? That means that, yeah, gifted is nothing wrong. I have nothing against gifted education. However, um, everyone can get into the one gifted class. And everyone cannot get into the gifted school. And so who among us know when any youngster is going to demonstrate their special gifts and talents? Right? Some of us bloom at different stages. Right? And we also know that giftedness is really based on the kinds of opportunities that you have, right? See, so, so if you provide young people with the kinds of opportunities that will stimulate their thinking, make connections, et cetera, we can develop giftedness in young people. 
But youngsters in public schools right now aren't being provided those opportunities. And I think that what we have to do is is in the we, um, and, I'm, and I mean this sincerely, the community along with educators and elected officials and leaders, um, what we really have to do is begin to talk about what is it that we want for all of the children, not just my child, not just your child, but all the children. And I think by doing that, uh, we can achieve the value of public education. Whenever I talk to young people, college students, I always encourage them to go into the law. And, and what I'm hoping is that there's going to be this group of very smart young lawyers who will challenge what's called the Rodriguez decision. Everyone knows about the Brown decision. No one knows about the Rodriguez decision of 1973. Um, the Rodriguez decision in Texas, they said they wanted to challenge the way public education was funded. And as you know, um, education by constitution is a state responsibility. It's not a federal responsibility. Um, and so Rodriguez uh, and plaintiffs, what they challenged was a very simple fact that all across America, states fund public education based on property tax. And we all know that that works if you live in a community with a high tax base. But suppose you're poor and you have a low tax base. What do your schools look like? And so Rodriguez actually was challenging this notion that by using property tax to pay for education, you're actually discriminating, discriminating against poor people. The decision came down, very interesting The decision. First part of the decision says that, well, you know, that's not a constitutional right. See, the only thing the states are required to do is provide you with enough education so that you can vote and and exercise your First Amendment rights. Now that's the 1973 decision, mm. right? So right now, what you have all across America between 1973 and the time of Barack Obama, what you had is that all across America, kids were learning different things. They were they had different resources. Uh, people were spending different, some different amounts of money on their schools, and money does make a difference when it comes to public education. Um, and, and until we had this very smart man that became president, Barack Obama, who came in and said, look, I can't change the Supreme Court decision, but what, what I can do is, is try to standardize what young people are learning. And so he created, he said, we're going to institute something called the Common Core. And a lot of people fight against that. They, they don't really understand what the vision was for that. Because prior to Barack Obama, every state, they had their own standards. So kids who lived in Mississippi were learning one thing. Kids who lived in New York were learning something else. Even kids living within the New York counties were learning different things. And so what he did was what I think the most masterful move in the last hundred years is say, okay, we're going to have a common set of standards for everyone. Right? So it really won't matter what your zip code is, how much money your parents have, whether you have parents, you will be exposed to the same set of content standards. And you see what happened. See, people are going crazy over this because, I mean, think about it. You know, soon as that got implemented, people, America went crazy in education. And so you've got to ask yourself, um, and, and I always say, I mean, I, I, I believe that, um, you know, like in most things, the pie is only so big, right? And so if all kids are being exposed to the same content, that really does away with some of the distinctions, right? That means that your child is going to be just as prepared to go to college is my child, right? And now it means that you, our children are gonna be competing, mm. right? And so here's the other thing that happened. When they raised the standards 
for the first time, for the very first time, all across America, you were finding pockets where white children were at the bottom. It wasn't just black kids at the bottom. So you got to ask yourself, why was it all right when the only kids who were at the bottom were children of color? You know, it's, it's almost as though failure has become normalized. You know, I, I like to say that sometimes many in our community, we, we're almost in a coma. You know, it's kind of like, why is it all right that our children are going to be at the bottom? If you go out here on the corner and ask someone who who's going to be at the bottom, they're going to tell you. We can we say it, but it doesn't make us angry. And so when the Common Core came out, and they gave those first round of tests based on the Common Core. People all across America went crazy. But where it was happening was primarily in affluent communities, middle-income white communities across America would say, wait a minute, hold it. You know, our children are no longer at the top. And so I think, again, um, there's value in public education. However, we've got to be very clear that we can't be duped into just jumping on any bandwagon. And we have to understand that all of our young people, regardless of whether you're rich or not, whether you live in a shelter or not, you can achieve high standards if you have the right opportunities. And that's really the challenge in public education. You know, how do we ensure that when we're raising the bar, that we're providing the steps so youngsters can reach the bar, that they're not just down there jumping up trying to get there. And that's the key for us. And I would just add one other thing that, that, that I think it's important to note. I said that many people attribute public education to that statement. But the public education that Thomas Jefferson was talking about was not universal public education. He was really talking about education for white men because at the time that he said it, even white women couldn't go to school. Uh, if you understand the history of America, the idea of universal public education is an outgrowth of the black experience in America. And so this is a system that actually started and we, right now, because we don't know it, we don't know our history, uh, we don't know how to use it. And so I think, I think it's important um, that we not abdicate our responsibility and we get back to this whole notion of how do we ensure that all of our young people receive their birthright, which is a quality education. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics and more ways for you to take civic action. Have a great day. Oh